Hi friends, this is Josh Minton, co-creator of the In Our House Now podcast with John Thorne and the Red Room podcast with Scott Ryan. This episode of In Our House Now is brought to you by the Blue Rose Magazine, the only Twin Peaks magazine still in publication. There have been 13 incredible issues over the past three years, and they are packed full of insights, interviews, and cutting-edge analysis that you won't find anywhere else. You are not a true Twin Peaks fan if you don't have this magazine on your shelf. So go out today to bluerosemag.com and buy all the available issues and pre-order issue 14, which will include an interview with Alicia Witt and another great essay by John Thorne. So subscribe to the Blue Rose magazine and support an independent publisher. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode seven of the In Our House Now podcast, a podcast about the return of Twin Peaks. Uh, I have my co-host, John Thorne, with me. Welcome, John. Welcome back. Hey, Josh. Good to talk to you again. (laughs) And we have a very special guest this week. John Bernardi, uh, editor of the 25 Years Later site and a phenomenal author and thinker about Twin Peaks. Uh, You are very welcome in, in our house. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I've been really appreciating everything you guys have been doing since minute one. That's great. Thank you so much. And uh, I think it's about to get even better. (laughs) So John Thorne, our topic this week uh, is going to progress from our last one, which was of Audrey. And can you kind of guide us over the bridge? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting. We were talking a lot about Audrey Horn in the last, uh, in the last podcast. And um, uh, we talked about, you know, what, what might have been happening to her and how it was perhaps something that was all inside her mind as she was trying to find some way escape from uh, whatever mental fugue she might have been in. Um, and, and so um, one of the things I, I didn't, I don't think I really got into when we talked about Audrey was um, the setting that we see Audrey in for the most part, which is in her apparent home. And uh, as she uh, progresses uh, through her various scenes, we see her move uh, from the very um, um, middle part or the depths of her home, which is Charlie's study, toward the exit of her house. Um, So that the third scene, in fact, she's standing right at the door, ready to leave the house. And then in the last scene, she's actually outside of the house, although perhaps not outside of whatever uh, mental journey that she's taking it. It just got me thinking about how homes and houses are sort of a critical element of uh, the way David Lynch tells stories. Uh, And uh, he has said in the past about, uh, you know, about how, homes and houses, I think maybe homes is, is, is the better term here, um, can be reflections of someone's mental state. Um, and we've seen that at play in, in movies like Lost Highway, where it's arguable that, um, that, you know, that the home that we see there is, is a reflection of the main character's mind. And I think that's what's happening with Audrey. I think, uh, you know, she starts as sort of the, the deepest part of her mind and, and moves toward uh, some release. And so that just got me thinking about homes and houses in, in Twin Peaks. And um, I started thinking about the various homes and houses that we see in The Return. 
Uh, and um, I know that Lynch is fascinated with the idea, uh, this idea. He's done lots of paintings about uh, houses and, and homes, and um, he has commented on it in his, uh, in his memoir, Room to Dream, about when he was younger, how he would be interested in looking at uh, homes when he'd drive by them on his bike and wondering what secrets might be going on or, you know, you know what calm and, and, and peaceful environment, environment might be in there. Um, and so I think all of this, you know, is at play in the return. And I thought it'd be worth looking at homes and houses and, and maybe how they reflect their occupants or, or what, what their meanings could be in the return. I first saw Twin Peaks at age 12 and um, you know, it's like, I, I was just, I, I was barely even in puberty, you know, it's like, I wasn't thinking like super critically about much of anything at that point. And um, I, um, I was basically just living the way that, um, you know, the, the Lynch folks seem to think about things, you know, it's like, just experience it. And <laughs> I hadn't really thought too deeply about it, but then one secret history of Twin Peaks came out, like that thing was a puzzle box, if anything ever was. And it really turned me into an active viewer instead of a passive one. And, um, you know, pretty much ever since that point, um, I, I came up with this idea through it, you know, just explaining all the discrepancies about, you know, time. I, I was calling it time quake because, you know, I read Kurt Vonnegut and the, the title was right out there. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's basically the way that I started thinking about it was that the, um, that the lodge and reality kind of scrape against each other and cause these ripples that like change things or, you know, influence things. And um, that prepared me well enough for season three that um, I, uh, I pretty much think about it by way of, um, you know, like the things in common between what Mark Frost comes up with and what David Lynch comes up with. And like the stuff that they both talk about is the most Twin Peaks out of Twin Peaks as far as I'm concerned. And that's pretty much how I, how I come at, um, uh, you know, figuring out what it is about Twin Peaks. Well, I love, I love the time quake introduction. I think I, you wrote, did you write an article about this or maybe you just commented yeah. on an article once? Cause I remember reading this and I, in my yeah. mind at that point, I was like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, I've got, I've got to come back and think about that because I remember the book time quake and wow, what a great connection. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't really connect it to what the actual book has, but uh, yeah, I did write that before, uh, before season three came out, and um, you know, it's like, wow, it turns out I'm not a complete quack. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, uh, the the notion of of time rubbing together. So, just as an aside, I've never watched Doctor Who before, the newer Doctor Who's. But that seems to be a really prevalent theme throughout that show. And so like Twin Peaks is not unique in, in playing with time and the effects of, you know, timelines and, and realities rubbing up against each other. So it shouldn't come as too much of a shock that, you know, I think we would all agree that some element of that affects certainly the concept of home uh, in, in the return. Mm -hmm. So um Perhaps we should jump into that. And, and if you wouldn't mind, Mr. John Beek, could you lead us into 
your perception of home as it applies to the return? Well, like most things in, um, in season three, it seems like there's a positive, um, like a positive state of reality and a negative state of reality. And, uh, I'm basically trying to say that, um, the positive reality tends to be a little bit more real and the, uh, the negative one tends to be more of like a delusion over the top of things. Just because as human beings, you're supposed to live in the reality that's physical rather than the, uh, the lodge adjacent one. And um, I know like everything you guys were saying about Audrey last time, it tends to, I tend to think of it as like when she showed up is about the same time. And I know you guys talk about this a lot when the dream was kind of rolling over reality, like a river. And, um, you know, in, in part 12 seems to be about when that actually started happening as far as I can tell too. Um, you know, it's like, that's when Sarah Palmer was like, you know, the, the Turkey jerky, it wasn't there before, you know, the, everything's different. Something happened to me. And, um, you know, that's when Audrey showed up too. So I kind of feel like that's when like the delusion of, you know, like a, a bad dream or, you know, the, <laughs> the, the yeah. really bad, the really bad story that Sarah was mentioning. You know, it's like it all, it, it's all showing up at the same time. And, um, you know, it's like, that's when Audrey's house shows up. And I completely agree with you, John, that, um, it's all like, um, it, it's at least adjacent to the fact that it's all a mental construction for her. And, um, yeah, I mean, Audrey's house all by itself is, is a huge way to look at it. And, uh, I know we'll be looking in Audrey's house later, but it, it's like, um, I was, I was thinking about it, like just from, just from minute one, the very first thing we see in the credit sequence is Laura's homecoming photo and everything is pointing toward home. You know, Dougie wants to go home. Everybody wants to go home. Um, it's just a thing. And um, this, this homecoming photo, it almost kind of veils over what happened in Laura's life too, because, you know, it's like, sure, it looks like I mean, it's actually called a homecoming photo, but one, she wasn't actually coming home. She was still a student. And, um, you know, so I mean, right there, it's like literally a false, <laughs> a false title to have. And um, then you also have it covering over her own, her, her own abusive house situation. You know, it's like, it's the, the picture makes it all look great, but that would be a delusion to kind of think of it that way. Like, you know, you just, you, you can't let, you can't let the dream cover over things. You have to be able to get to where you're at. And that's kind of, you know, it's like when, when you end up metaphorically being stuck in this delusional state, the house that you're in really is a prison. And, um, you know, like when you can get out of your debt or, you know, whatever's holding you back, your trauma, um, it, it's like what happened to Janie E and in the Jones house, you know, that place was a prison for her in particular because she was saddled with all this debt and this financial stuff, like you guys were covering in the money episode. And, um, you know, it's like the very second that uh, Dougie brings home, or, you know, Cooper Dougie brings home all that, all that lodge assisted cash, you know, suddenly, um, you know, the, this house, this debt that they're stuck in isn't a prison anymore. It's actually, um, 
it, it can be this place of security. So like it went from a negative connotation with the dead around her to a positive one. And, you know, then like she started noticing Dougie for, you know, like the, the guy who actually was in front of her. It's like the veil was gone and like her metaphorical state, she could start actually having her home be a nice secure place. I think, you know, what's interesting about all of that as we get into this is the difference between a house and a home, because um, a home does not have to be a house. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that um, the idea of home is um, it's a concept. It isn't a place necessarily. It's a it's uh, it's an idea, um, a place where you are, you have found comfort and contentment or you're You've, you've opened your mind to a, a larger reality. Um, and I think that's what home is in Twin Peaks. Um, and it, it's fascinating to talk about the Dougie Jones house, the Jones household, because it is a house, uh, obviously, and it is a place where it's not been a happy place. If we know any, what we can derive, what little we can about the true Dougie Jones is that he was not, a very good person. I mean, obviously he was cheating on uh, Janie E and he was gambling and he was probably involved in some underhanded dealings at work. Um, and when Cooper comes, the, the purely good Cooper that he is, um, he transforms that place from just the house into a home, I think. And, and sort of off on a little tangent here, it's interesting about the money and, and all that because I, it, it, it occurred to me as I watched it that either there's other forces involved around him or he himself is somehow preparing his future uh, in that home. Uh, he is making it the place that he wants to come back to. And he does. I mean, that we see him come back there and everything that he needs now is in place. He's got a loving family. He's got all the money he needs. He's got, um, he's, he's established himself as an extremely valuable member of the lucky seven insurance agency. And so he has transformed that house into the place that he wants to come back to. And he's made it his home. Uh, and he's made it a home for Sonny Jim. He's made it a home for Janie E. So that's, that's interesting how I think you, you, you perhaps see the transformation of a house into a home. Um, sticking with the Dougie idea, um, when, um, when Cooper arrives in Las Vegas as the Dougie persona, he's obviously... Um, he, he's sort of an empty vessel and um, the home he appeared, the house he appears in, in, uh, in, in Rancho Rosa is an empty house. And I think that was deliberate. I think Lynch was trying to show, this is just the, one of the early examples of how the house reflects the mind that's in it. And, um, and so that's some of what we saw. We're talking about Audrey and how that house is a reflection of her mental state. We see it, I think, with Dougie's appearance uh, in, in that empty house. Um, and across the street is the, is the drugged out mom and the kid, um, who I argue are essentially doppelgangers of Janie E and Sonny Jim. Um, they are what would be, they would become perhaps if the true Dougie Jones were to go along the path, he would eventually leave them and, and then they would be saddled with the dead or who knows what would have happened to them. So in a way, they're a reflection 
in that empty house across the street. So, so there's, there's these parallels that are happening there um, with Dougie, and they're reflected in the, the houses that we see him and, um, and these other people uh, appear in. So that's just, that's the beginning of it. And obviously uh, we can go through and talk about how some of the other homes we see reflect the mentality of the, the or the, the personality of the people who occupy them. And also perhaps worth noting is some of the houses or homes we never see. There are characters whose homes we never see, um, particularly many of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department and um, some of the FBI. We just don't see their homes. And we've never seen Cooper's home. The, you know, the Dale Cooper that we know. Um, so I think all of that is, is, um, is being explored in, in the return and we can walk through some of these places. Well, we definitely should. So uh, a few things. So um, could we do get Cooper's address? That's nice. And I actually wrote that out. I remember typing it out as I was scrutinously going through every second. So uh, even in my book, I, there's an actual address in Philadelphia. For, for actual it. Dale Cooper? Yes, there is. Yeah. Is, it, yeah. is it in the file that uh, Tammy Preston is looking at? Is that? It, uh, it, it is. I yeah. think it's actually on the screen uh, mm. is when they're in the prison. I remember like freeze framing ah, and, and okay. typing everything out. So we do have an address, although that, an address is my home, as you say. Um, mm -hmm. I want to pause for a moment for something you just said that I've never heard before, and it's absolutely fascinating me, which is this doppelganger concept of the 119 lady and, and mm -hmm. the child along uh, with, with Janie E. And, and as soon as you said that, I thought about, okay, well, what's the balance between those neighborhoods? Because obviously there's a huge explosion, you know, in the Rancho Rosa neighborhood and all of this violence that happens. But there's also okay. violence on the other end of that spectrum in the Dougie Jones neighborhood. But there's a huge shootout at the end. Right. And so there's this explosion of violence both at the beginning and at the end of the neighborhoods of, of Cooper's journey, you know, coming through, right. you know, whatever that is. So I think let's let's talk about this concept of balance there with home. The, the, the two neighborhoods, we don't really see a lot of the rest of the Lancelot Court neighborhood. We really only see that house uh, that they're right. in. Um, uh, so, but, but I do think in some ways, you're right there, you know, obviously one is an empty neighborhood. It's a ghost town uh, and, and maybe ghosts inhabit it. Maybe the 119 uh, uh, woman and, and the son are, are ghosts or as I say, as I think of them as reflections of, um, of Dougie's family. Uh, and, uh, and, and the house that Cooper goes to is not a happy place when he first gets there. I mean, the way Janie greets him, you know, she slaps him across the face and she brings him in and she's unhappy. Um, of course, this speaks to the, the, um, the effect that the good Cooper has on people and places is that he, he transforms them. He's a transformative uh, presence and makes places and people better. So I would argue that that's what happened, that he, mm. he goes to that house and it becomes a happy place. And, you know, I mean, it becomes happy mentally and spiritually and also it becomes happy um uh you know because uh they end up with a new car and a new place and they get all these material goods as well mm -hmm. which maybe are just symbols and not necessarily any kind of you know you can't attach happiness to stuff i think links certainly agree but those were just in in some ways those things occurred uh i think um it just sort of happenstance in the wake of uh of 
Cooper transforming that place. Well, it's actually really interesting because, yeah, I would have never put together about the doppelganger sort of thing between the 119 lady and her son, but it totally it totally matches with some of the themes too, like Richard Horn, who is another one we've never even heard about his house. Um, you know, it's like the, um, there was that scene between uh, Ben Horn where he was talking about the green bike that his dad gave him and everything. And basically how Richard never had a father at home and 119 lady, you know, doesn't seem to have any, um, any male presence in the house either. So it's, it's almost like um, they're a doppelganger because there's an incomplete family there. And um, it seems like one thing that really makes a house a home, a metaphor I love. Um, uh, the way that um, you really make a house a home is by having a family that supports itself and that supports each other and helps each other. And, um, you know, like once you, once you're able to do that, then, then you can start getting a positive energy going on. And, um, you can't get that in a ghost town because the family isn't even there, much less supporting itself. Well, do we see that at any point in Twin Peaks? Is there ever, so maybe the Hastings in the first, you know, second season maybe at the end, but do we ever see a family, a full family that's supportive of itself living in a happy home anywhere. Are you talking, are you talking about in the return in season three? Uh, I would say yes first, but then in all of Twin Peaks, has that ever been a theme? Well, somewhat the Briggs household does it. Yeah. Even though it's a little bit disconnected, you know, it's like everybody's positive in there and things start <clears> kind of <throat> going right. And, um, you can almost say the same for Andy and Lucy, even though they were shopping for the chair and being supportive of each other in the sheriff's station. Um, they, it was still like a positive experience. And then, you know, one goes to see the firemen and one goes to like actually, you know, take care of the big darkness and then understand cell phones. So <laughs> uh, the, the support actually leads in the right direction. And um, same thing with all the bounty, you know, the, uh, the, the gym set, the, uh, the car, you know, like everything the Mitchens were like pelting the Joneses with, you know, that's, that's basically, um, benefits of a family that's finally supporting each other which started with you know the debt reduction mm. so it it's it's interesting um that I and mean, we're kind of getting at one of the things that i've noticed about the return is that that there are not a lot of happy households or homes and um, there are a few um we talked about obviously dougie's and that's outside of twin peaks but it it's still in the, in the show itself, uh, it becomes a happy place, certainly by the end. Um, we don't see Lucy and Andy's home. Um, the only time it's ever perhaps been uh, glimpsed is in the European ending of the pilot. Um, I don't think we, you know, we don't see it any other time. And, and um, obviously, as I said this earlier, we don't see a lot of homes. We assume maybe, uh, well, obviously, Lucy and Andy probably have a happy home. Um, but, you know, we, we don't see Frank Truman's home. We hear about it. It does not sound like a happy place. Um, uh, when Doris comes in and complains about all the things that are going wrong there, there's a leaking pipe and, you know, this is going on. Um, and 
so in, in many respects, Frank Truman is, is um, more comfortable in, at work. He doesn't want to be home, although he's certainly supportive. He's certainly a, a caring person. Um, we see him at his best, I think, probably in the workplace. And maybe that's true of, of Lucy and Andy. Um, but the Briggs household, we do go in there and we, we see Betty Briggs. And that's, that seems to be um, a happy place. And I'm not sure in the original series it started out that way. It was a tense place. It was maybe a, a, an oppressive place. But all the characters change as time goes by. And that becomes, and, and maybe you could point back to the original series when Major Briggs just reappears in the living room after he disappeared. Um, that that's really the moment where it, it, they come together as a family. Um, certainly, you can tell from Betty Briggs that that place is, um, is a calm, organized place, uh, a refuge, maybe, from the rest of the crazy world out there. Um, but, wow, I, I'd say most of the other homes that are in the series um, are, are unhappy places. And, and, and they're depicted that way probably because they're reflecting the characters who are occupying them. Um, just as a quick example, we can talk about um, Beverly Page's home. We see it briefly, uh, uh, but we find out when she walks into that house that her husband is sick, probably dying of cancer, and that they've actually transformed the living room into a hospital room. And, and then there's a tension between those characters and there's an anger um, and a resentment between those characters because of the sickness. And, uh, and so that's what that home has become. And uh, it reflects the relationship and, uh, and the ailments that uh, her husband, I think Tom is his name, is going through. And, and that's just sort of an easy one to look at, to see how that theme is being explored in The Return, how the homes tend to reflect um, either the physical or the mental issues that are plaguing uh, the people who live there. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, really astute, and I would say that the common theme of of these broken homes filled with broken people, you know, if we put that within the context of of a dreamer, you know, th- this idea from Carl Jung that when you when you go to sleep and dream, it's the energies that inform the organs of your bodies that are in conflict yeah. with one another that drive the dream elements and the narrative of the dream itself. And I think that that's really applicable here, um, especially if we try to frame this within the mind of, of a certain single dreamer (laughs) that's going through some stuff, you know, (laughs) and and he's, and he's got characters that are playing out dramas and narratives inside of him, including, I would say, Audrey. I mean, that's how I like to view Audrey's story is a very special character within the dreamer's consciousness that carries an emotional element of release for him that's deeply connected to his own awakening in in the return and and i'd like to talk about part eight within that context as well because you know i I think that part eight is not just a flashback it's not in my mind not just a an origin story of who bob was i think it's it's something that happens within the narrative of season three that essentially hard boots and resets the dream and allows all of that stuff to come out (laughs) that's been repressed. That's been tapped down. You know, uh, it feels, you know, 
it feels like that is an inciting element that drives the narrative from the the second into the third act even help me help me out and tell me i'm wrong one of you johns <laughs> Um, well, you're definitely wrong. No. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, part eight, I mean, you could argue that we're in home in part eight, right? We see the firemen's, I, the realm of the firemen, but it certainly mm. seems like it's depicted as a home. Um, a senior Dito is sitting in a, on a couch. She's listening to a record. We've seen this place earlier, the very opening scene of part one. Um, it's possible that that, uh, that that place is their home. And um, it's an unusual place and it probably reflects the unusual uh, otherworldly uh, characters that they are. Um, I, you know, I mean, I could speak to the idea that part eight shifts the narrative. Uh, I mean, it, it, part eight, for me, part eight is transitional between act one and act two. Uh, and, um, I mean, obviously a lot of energies are released in that, in that part. Um, but if we want to, you know, if we want to stick with Holmes, it's interesting because it is in part eight that we see the first, if you, if you're talking about it chronologically, um, the, the first violation of the home, the first invasion of a home, which is when the little, the, the little girl, uh, the young girl, uh, goes into her house and falls asleep or is put to sleep in her bed and the frog moth comes through the window. And uh, uh, that more than anything else is the first violation of the home and, and perhaps sets in motion so many of these bad things that are going to happen to people over time. There, did I help you, Josh, with that? You did. Yeah, <laughs> you actually did. John B., do you have a uh, thought about part eight in relation to the concept of home? Yeah, well, part um, that's a that's a two story house, just like Laura's, and I think even that kind of says something. Yeah, it's like the um, this is the very first moment of two stories within that house, according to, you know according to the way Twin Peaks tells its stories anyway. So I like that the, the two story house. Now, if I remember correctly, though, the young girl who I'm going to say mm-hmm. is Sarah Palmer because Mark Frost said it. <laughs> Um, is on her bedroom is on the first floor because I, I seem to remember the frog moth being able to jump from the ground fairly easily up to her window, but I've always just assumed that. Hmm. Is her bedroom on the second floor? You know, that is, that's a really interesting point because I do think it might be on the first floor the way it's depicted in The Return. I would have to go back and look at that. Hmm. It, it, it obviously is, you know, there maybe there's a basement or whatever. I mean, it's not right necessarily at ground level it's hard to say but the reason why i bring it up and and think it's worth discussing is i think in the final dossier when frost discusses what happened that night i think he uh the account is that they go upstairs that the the parents of the girl go upstairs to her room i'd have to go back and check that i'm sure people who are listening to this now are looking at it and going well you guys don't know what you're talking about of course it is uh upstairs but but that that's that's just the way I'm remembering it from having read it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but if it is upstairs, and it could be, it, there is a parallel there between Laura Palmer's room, uh, and I hadn't thought about that before because I think that you know that's worth looking at the idea that there's this 
young girl's room uh, at the corner of the house. And uh, she falls asleep in her bed and she is violated by some otherworldly being if we want to go that route. Mm -hmm. um, and that parallels what happens to Laura. Fascinating. What a great connection. Never thought of it and I love it. Um, okay, so... Wow. Where, where do we go from here? <laughs> I'm trying to think like in the context, you know, I'm racking my brain. Is there a positive place that's a home in Twin Peaks? And I guess the first place my mind goes to is the log lady's house. Yeah. Um, and she boarded up her fireplace to keep the darkness out. It was in one of the log lady intros and it was basically implying that, you know, there's, there's, you know, spookiness around it you know it's like of course she has to board up her fireplace and you know it's like maybe she understands black fire maybe i mean I, i'm assuming she does if she understands the um you know that which is and that which is not flowing in it's like a river i mean she's she, i i credit her for being in touch with these things Well, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the Log Lady's home, um, which we can assume, even though it looks a little different in the return than from what we saw in the original series, we assume it's probably the same place. It's a, um, it's a small cabin in the, deep in the woods. It takes a while to get to. We know that from season one. Uh, um, I wonder how the Log Lady get, you know, gets around. Does she have a car or does she, <laughs> does she just walk out of the house and walk into the village? Anyway. That's something to think about. But, um, um, you know, it's deep in the woods. Um, it's dark when, the times we see it. But uh, I think the log lady is, um, and, and the house might reflect this, uh, is very comfortable in that, in that natural realm, uh, in those deep, dark, perhaps um, supernatural woods. She is, she is safe. I think she's safe there. She, she, has a, she has an understanding, a conceptual understanding of, of the realm that she inhabits. Uh, and I think her house is probably a very, very safe place. I, I would consider that to be someplace that, um, um, if, if, you know, while she's in it, um, if, you, you know, if you were with her, you would be protected from uh, whatever... Uh, darkness is in that woods um but whether or not it's a happy place or not i don't know i mean there's a lot of memories that uh, come with the log lady of what happened to her we know her backstory uh it's only really implied in the series but we we know more about it i guess if we go outside of the series to the frost books uh and well the log lady introductions i would consider part of the series and she does talk a little bit about her past um so she she has um, protected herself, and in some ways, she has retreated to this. Uh, I will consider it again a safe haven, um, but I'm not sure it's happy. The idea that the fireplace being boarded up, um, I think uh, that there's there's an element there of um, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, but um, certainly not unhappy. But um, she is um, she's reconciled herself with her past. And I think some of that is reflected in that house. Mm -hmm. I would say the difference between um, 
this is where there's a, you know, but like between house and home, there's a distinction between happy and positive. Mm, yeah, very good. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it seems to be a morose kind of a sadness. And I would say the same sadness in Betty Briggs' house, by the way. Remember, she's living there alone. It's not like Bobby lives with her. So there's this this emptiness. I mean, even though that it's kindness there, there's an emptiness. And I would say that actually the same for the Jones home. For the first, you know, 75% of the time we see the Jones home, there's still an emptiness there, even though there's a full family living in there. It's not until, you know, right around the swing set time that it really starts to shine. It, it's like a place you want to go to and, and a fire and a fireplace. What's more welcoming uh, in the image than that? So the idea that you would, you know, board that up to keep the fire out or to keep a, you know, a welcoming signal out. I think it's really interesting. Um, as, mm. as, uh, I, I would like to switch to the other side of it and talk about something we know is dark. So obviously the Palmer home is a dark place, but I really want to talk about Otis's shack because it's one <laughs> of the first homes that we see um, in, in, in the return and some really weird shit is going on. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess, it, I guess it's a house. Um, I guess, I mean, there's, there's easy chairs and it seems like um, there's a, a backside to that we can't see that maybe there's bedrooms in there. There's a living room there with these um, unusual two, two um, characters. I, you know, we don't really hear much of them, but they sort of haunt this place. Um, and it is sort of this nexus, right? This is where, um, this is where Mr. C comes in order to uh, access some of the tools he needs in order to continue on with what his um, his mission is, whatever what, you know, what his um, goal is, and so he picks up these two characters that that uh, uh, that he needs in order to to continue on his way, and it it, it less like a home, and it's more like a um, it's almost like a place where he goes to like a tool shed, for, for lack of a better term. Yeah. I'm sure there's better terms we could use. Um, but he, he picks up the tools he needs to, uh, to move on from there. Um, so it, it's interesting too, because there's a guard outside of this place and I'm not quite sure what they're guarding against. If they're guarding against him. They <laughs> not a very good one. Like, I mean, uh, 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 and so, um, I guess it's, I, I guess it's Beulah's home, right? We, we maybe make that, or is it Otis's? I, we don't really know. It is a fascinating place, and it does seem to be a place that is um, almost like a halfway house, I guess. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm thinking out loud here, yeah. where the people who, quote unquote, live there, um, it may be temporary for all of them. They're there waiting mm -hmm. to go It's out. a waiting room. Again, it could be a waiting room. And maybe yeah. Otis is sort of like the little man in this respect, and he's sitting in his chair, and he's sitting right there by the door and he greets whoever comes in and he really doesn't do much else other than kind of oversee these transactions that take place there. Yeah. I've been thinking of it as a halfway house too. It's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, what do you call it? It's like, um, I mean, there, it's, it's like a physical house that is representative of the red room almost mm -hmm. like a doppelganger of that. 
but it's also representative of like all the uh, you know the, the motor homes the the mm-hmm. is it a vehicle is it a house yeah you know, it's like it mm-hmm. it's um it's that sort of place and of course the the um the lodgy side of cooper is going to go there to to pick up his tools well mm-hmm. let's not forget it's a compromised place because one of his tools is a double agent <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, automatically from the very beginning whatever this is, and I love this concept of it's a facsimile of the Red Room or something that serves the function that the Red Room does for this particular trap that Cooper's about to be caught in, you know, and the idea that the worst part in him would go and grab these two henchmen and one of them is already a double agent for (laughs) working for the best part of his nature, you know, or, or, or whatever is happening there. I think that's really important. And as a concept of a home, like, you know, people can live in strange places. I would say Ben Horn lives in a hotel. The Mitchum brothers live in a hotel, it appears like. I mean, we kind of see their home, but I'm assuming this is part of their properties, it feels like. You you know, if if I could, you just started started me thinking about this place and the fact that uh, Mr. C goes there and he picks up... um, um, Wow, I'm losing the character's name now. Ray um, and Daria. Ray and Daria. And, and it, you know, it's curious to me as he goes there to get them, but where did he go if he went anywhere to get Hutch and Chantal? Um, did he get them there? And then it started me thinking, well, Hutch and Chantal's home is a van, right? I mean, that's kind of, I think they live, do they live somewhere? We don't know. I mean, obviously we they could, know. and we just don't know. Um, we see, you know, we see Chantal in a, ho- in, in a motel room um, briefly, um, but most of the time we see them living out of that van. And I think, you know, that's just another perfect example of sort of reflection. They, they, they die very violently in that van too. Um, a reflection of their, um, their mentality, which is they're basically thugs for hire or they're, uh, or they're thugs that have pledged their allegiance to Mr. C, and uh, they are ranging out and about, and they probably—I um, mean, they probably check into hotels or motels as they're as they're you know out on missions. But basically, that you know that that van, which is not—it doesn't look like a very comfortable place by any means. That's that's their home. Yeah, yeah. This is this is actually really important because. Of all of the characters infused with, I guess we'll call it negative energy in the return, yeah. do any of them have a home besides Sarah Palmer? Like, they all seem to be, mo- Mr. C certainly doesn't have like a Lex Luthor fortress that he has to defend or that he's walled himself inside of. That's not the element of, of evil in Twin Peaks even. It's like, it moves. <laughs> you know, the evil moves and yeah. the, the, the goal is to prevent it from moving through you. Uh, but Sarah Palmer's home seems to be the fortress of evil inside of the return. Would anyone, do you disagree? No, I, I, I mean, I've written about uh, the Palmer house as a haunted house. And I think that it became corrupted over time. Obviously, we know um, all the awful things that happened in that home, um, not only what happened to Laura, which we all know about, but there was murder that happened in that home, the death of Maddie Ferguson. Um, and, um, and then we, of course we find out that potentially um, 
Sarah Palmer has herself been corrupted at some point, uh, whether or not that manifests itself uh, in the return, initially in the return, whether it's been there all this time that she's been, you know, aware of, of her darker nature. Um, I, I, it's interesting, it was very deliberate the way that home was, that house was depicted both from the exterior and the interior, is it's a mess. Um, the outside, you know, the, the plants have all gone to seed, the, the lawn is overgrown, and the, you know, it, it, it looks um, it, obviously it, it untended. And then the interior, we don't see a lot of the interior, we really only see the living room, but the living room is a terrible mess too. I mean, it is, um, it has truly been um, abandoned in many ways. And so despite the fact that Sarah Palmer lives in that house, I would consider it in many respects an abandoned home. I mean, she's somewhat an abandoned character. I'm thinking about it in the way that there's so many portals into that place, just in general. It's like the darkness has has come. To, I mean, I, I'm leaving the Tremont painting out of it because I think that's probably more of a positive force. But also that could be a source for delusion, for, you know, Laura to walk into and, um, you know, just to avoid things. You know, it's like a... a you know, it's it's a mercy for Laura, but you know, even that one isn't exactly like you know. Here, acknowledge what's happening to you. Um, it could just be an escape. Um, then the the ceiling fan, you know, that's um, you know, Bob Bob basically tells Laura that he wants to taste through her mouth. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not that's not good stuff. So, I mean, even though this is a house, this is like a house with so few boundaries. I mean, the window. Um, and, um, I mean, honestly, Sarah's even a portal because, you know, uh, Laura's like half born from Bob at this point, if you, mm. if you think about it. So like, there's so much darkness coming into this house, like invited in just through its, uh, just through its, um, uh, what, what do you, what do you even call it? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's construction. Know. It's, it's like the poltergeist house that you can totally see that the Palmer home eventually just collapsing in up on the yeah. side eating itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. From minute one, it seems like that house has just been allowing darkness into it. it it's interesting to me too, because I think this really gets right at the core idea of, of this topic is that, Cooper, who has certainly made many mistakes and, and perhaps continues to do so in uh, the return, his, his thought is he needs to bring Laura home. And he thinks the house is her home. And, and that's really not true. I mean, that's just not true. It, the house is not her home. Um, wherever her home is, I'm not sure we know where Laura's home is. I mean, Laura Palmer, Palmer is a very complicated character especially after what we've seen in season three so it's hard to say where her home might be if there's a physical place for her home and then it doesn't have to be a physical place mm -hmm. but i think cooper thinks her home is that house and he's going to take her there and um that house is not her home um so i, I think that's speaks to the whole idea of how a home is not a house. I think this is actually really <laughs> important. So th this idea of Laura Palmer as a construct, you know, did she ever really have a home after the incest started, you know, being ripped away from that, perhaps the red room could be 
the construct that that has been built up around Laura, um, even if it's just in Cooper's mind or if it's in Laura's mind, it doesn't matter. But she obviously doesn't have a home in uh, in Odessa, Texas when we, when we meet her. I would say that's whatever was going on in that domicile was a dysfunctional situation, uh, given the dead body and, and the rotting stuff on the floor and all of that. And then, you know, her, Cooper's car becomes uh, part uh, a home for the journey that they take back to Twin Peaks, and they arrive. And to John, to John Thorne's point, right there, there's nothing there for her. I mean, like the, even the history is not there for her. The memories are gone. It's there's nothing. In right. The exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is it possible that that concept of a house is not a home is the point of Twin Peaks to return? Like, is that the final summation <laughs> of what? we're supposed to walk away from with because I'm okay with that. Yeah, I could buy it. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the idea that Lynch explores again, I mean, so I'm repeating myself is that, yeah, a a physical place or a physical structure, um, it can be a home. It's not necessary. And oftentimes it's uh, the very opposite of what a home should be. Mm. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, I'm, you probably saw me, I'm flipping some notes here, and maybe you can remember when um, Cooper drives Carrie Page away from Odessa, she has a few things that she sort of says more to herself than she, uh, than she says to, uh, to him. And she said, I know she says, um, I was too young to know any better. And, and I, all of this is fascinating dialogue. But I, I think she says something to the effect of, I tried to keep uh, a tidy house or a tidy home. What, what, do you recall? I mean, I'm sure I could find yeah. it if I, if I look. Yeah, she's, yeah, it was like the, the mirrored, almost Shelley language. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have to edit for a minute here. Yeah, that's um, fine. Uh, Odessa, yeah, yeah, so Laura starts to drift off to sleep and says, Odessa, I tried to keep a clean house, keep everything mm. organized. And they drive. She's getting really sleepy now. We dropped eyelids. She says, it's a long way. She falls asleep into perhaps the first few seconds of a dream while Cooper continues to drive in sleepy words that can only be purely truthful. This is me writing this. So, so, in those days, I was too young to know any better. Right. So she says, I tried to keep a clean house. Is that what she said? So interesting that she says house there Mm. to me and not home. Um, uh, you know, she's trying, if, if house, if, if, if a house is a reflection of your mental state or a house is a metaphor for your mind, then she was trying to keep a clean mind, a clean, uh, an organized mind. Um, uh, and I'm thinking out loud here, so I'm not quite sure where this would go, but I, I, um, I think it's just worth at least putting out there because I do think that Lynch likes to, to explore the idea that a house um, is just another way of, um, of exploring a mind. And uh, if she said, I tried to keep a clean house, I mean, you know, look, the first, the first few lines of the return are, it's in our house now. Um, and so, you know, I, when I hear that, I immediately think it's in our mind now. Mm-hmm. That's how I read it. When I, when I see the word house uh, particularly emphasized or, you know, deliberately discussed, especially by someone like the fireman. I, I don't think of house. 
I really, I think that that's a code word for lack of a better term. It's a metaphor for mind. Um, so I would, I would, you know, I'm going to have to go back and look and think more about that dialogue that she speaks in the car, because I don't think it's just throwaway dialogue. No, um, neither. I'm not sure, you know, you can really derive any greater meaning other than maybe she is um, just trying to kind of come to terms with her own her own self, just like Audrey was, just like almost all the characters are, except Cooper, maybe, who thinks he has come to terms with himself and <laughs> and, and, and is still a long way. Um, Which the uh, fireman tells him. You're, you are far away, exactly. You are far away. But so let's, I want to pause for one moment because I didn't really get this dis- distinction until you just said this, but yeah, I mean, our podcast is called In Our House, but for the fireman to say to Cooper, it's in our house, that means... You and me, bro, we're in this together. We're, we're of one. Like, we, we live here together. We are elements of this. And I, I guess I've kind of always thought of the fireman as this angel, as Cooper's angel. And does every one of, of us have a fireman? Is the fireman something that represents the best part inside each of us? And when the fireman and the, the dreamer, so to speak, are aligned together, and that's what's driving the car here, that is that capable of creating a home wherever you are. I like that. Oh, I think the idea that the home, you know, home is where the heart is, how okay to have a, you know, um, simplistic you want to make it. But um, yeah, I mean, again, we, 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 we said this earlier, um, home does not have to be a house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a home is where you find your refuge and your comfort and um, your peace with the universe. I love this. It means that Twin Peaks is really just a Hallmark movie. <laughs> at the end, at the end of the that's, day, it's just a Hallmark. That's what they were movie. shooting for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where we go from that. Um, but it's obvious that I think home is absolutely one of the most important concepts in the return. It's in the beginning, it's in the end, the distinction mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. house and home. Yeah. Very important um, to all of the characters. And uh, perhaps talking about the roadhouse for a moment would be interesting because um, it, it seems like the only mention of home I'm trying to think of is uh, Tina's house. It, she talks about her home in that. Uh, Trick mm-hmm. has a home and he's been locked in it with, uh, you know, he's been house arrest. Home. House, he's arrest, right? house arrest. House arrest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and mm-hmm. I'm trying, just trying to think of, of some of the other mentions of home within the, the booth scenes that we see. Hmm. I'd have to go back and look at that. Um, of course, you know, my take on those are that they're extensions of Audrey, uh, Audrey's um, right. mental landscape. But um, no happy ones, though. I don't hear a whole lot of happy home stories. No, again, I mean, and that, that gets to, you know, that gets to the point of the fact that, you know, when we do go into a home or a house in Twin Peaks, it's rarely, it's rarely a happy place. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, like, for example, Big Ed, we see him, I guess, <clears throat> in his office, right? When he's, when he's uh, burning the, whatever he's burning, a note maybe he was going to give mm-hmm. um, uh, to Norma. But um, 
you, the implication I get from that scene, he's eating his dinner there, is that maybe he lives there and that his home is this gas station. Um, yeah, it, it's hard and I, I, I hesitate to extrapolate too much from a very short, brief scene. Um, but it's striking again to me that there's so many characters who we only see in their workplaces. We see, um, uh, we never see Norma's home. Um, we don't see Bobby's home. We don't see Hawk's home. I mean, wouldn't you want, wouldn't you be interested in Hawk's home? I mean, what, mm -hmm. what is that place like? I mean, these are fascinating characters. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I, they didn't have time. And the story was uh, of something else. It had to go in its own directions. So you know, they weren't going to take the time necessarily to, to visit all their various homes as they might do in a regular network series. Um, mm more I think we see more homes in in the series uh when it was on 30 years ago but um um I I I find it I just find it interesting that uh so many of the so many of the characters are depicted outside of their homes and I don't know if it's because it's not necessary to see their homes we kind of know who they are and their homes are just simply be a reflection of who of who they are um uh, or whether or not many of these characters like Andy and Lucy and like Hawk um, are, are they, they have come to terms with themselves. They're, they're content with who they are. And so um, their home, when we see them, when we see Lucy and Andy at the sheriff's station, when Lucy and Andy are together, they're home. We don't need to see their physical space. Together. They talk yeah. about it and they talk about, you know, the fact that they're going to, um, you know, take Wally's room and transform <laughs> it into a study and all that. But, you know, again, when we see Andy and Lucy, um, it's so funny. We see them down. And, uh, Lucy's got a robe that she gives to NATO. You know, she just happens to have it there. They're, they're home. Well, there's intimation. When we see Lucy and Andy, they're home. And I think when we see Norma in the, in the Double R Diner, she's home. That's her home. I would suspect we don't see a lot of happy homes because a lot of people in, in season three in particular are kind of like pushing through their stuff. You know, I, mm. I've got this thing about trauma cycles where like everybody is trying to get to a breakthrough. And then after, mm -hmm. after they finally hit their breakthrough, then we really don't see them anymore because it's not about what they do for, or I mean, it's not, which direction they choose to go, you know, forward or backward. It's, it's just that, you know, like, you have to work hard just to get there. So like getting to the breakthrough seems to be the thing with, um, with this season and like getting to the point where you can consider a home would be, I think, um, you know, also kind of thematically resonant with everything. So of course we're not going to see a lot of happy homes because everybody's, you know, living in mobile homes. Everybody's hmm. living in a state where they're not exactly in a home yet, but they're, you know, a lot of them are getting there, you know, trick, he's out of house arrest now. So <laughs> he can, he can, you know, start on the right path. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, like the roadhouse, like you can kind of see, um, you can kind of see uh, at least, you know, the stuff that I've been writing about where um, there's a lot of people going in, a, in like choosing right at, in their scenes to either go in a positive or a negative direction. And, um, 
you know, like, you know, Trick, I would say him and those ladies, they are definitely heading in the right direction. Whereas the, uh, the, you know, the, the rash girl and everybody else, like they're kind of heading, um, like further into the delusion, further into drugs, further into the things that, you know, take away a home and cover over the fact of any sense of home that you're ever going to get. But hmm. the people that do, they, um, yeah, I, I guess they go home. <laughs> but I, li- I like this idea. It's very uh, Buddhist, you know, in, in that the, the cycle of release, you know, from your ego. And, and, and then you transcend this idea of going around and around and, and being reincarnated back into to physical pain. It's like, it reminds me of the film Jacob's Ladder, where, you know, the Tim Robbins character was, he was dying, you know, in Vietnam and had been killed by friendly fire and, and the whole movie where these demons trying to coax him to just to release his ego. Right. And, and I, I think that there is some element of that. It's very Eastern. And obviously we know Cooper's influenced by Eastern thought anyway, uh, from, mm-hmm. from the first season of, of Twin Peaks. And I, I really like, you know, John B, what you brought in there with the, uh, the idea of the, these, uh, what you call trauma cycles. Is, is that what you said? Yeah. I, I think yeah. that's really pertinent. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, you know, that, that, that's a really nice way of generally looking at the whole show is these characters, obviously, and, and you both already kind of covered this. Um, so forgive me for maybe saying the same thing again, but, um, you know, the, the, the idea of going home is sort of a core element of the return. And um, it does not necessarily mean a house. And we see so many characters in these houses, um, Becky and Steven in their terrible little hovel, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, and even Miriam, you know, she's not in, a, in, in the happiest of places. N- none of them are home. They haven't found a home yet. You know, it'd be really interesting if they had time maybe to explore it more. Well, no, I, mean, I think it actually fits. I think when, when Norma puts her hand on Ed's shoulder, they're home. And so that's what it is. It's, it's finding that home. And it's not crystal clear in the, in the return. I mean, it's not spelled out for us. But you know, the implication is that it's going to be a physical space. But it isn't. It isn't a physical space. And, it's an emotional. And, and when we see these physical spaces of these people still sort of striving, um, they're not, they're, they're, they haven't found a home yet. Um, I think, I think that is a, an underlying theme. Uh, and, and obviously it's reflected in, in Cooper in some respects, because there's a part of him that is constantly on a mission and, and we never see him. We never see him at home, despite maybe his address being listed. We never see him at home. And yet there's this aspect of uh, Cooper, the Dougie aspect, um, who does in the end, I mean, that, in many ways, that is a happy ending. When he comes to that door, um, he, he has come home. He's come home and it is in fact a house. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a great point. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, C- Cooper is not capable of settling 
for for a home and the home mm-hmm. like, i guess you know as you just defined it john this emotional connection between mm-hmm. human beings related in the living moment <laughs> so that means yeah. it's not it's it's you yeah. and i and, and right. john b right now yeah. connecting with right. one another in the moment not an image or a memory right. those that you can't walk through your memories and have them be the same we learned this in twin peaks yeah. return it's part of the nature of part 17 like you just you can't walk through your memory and have it remain the same thing but this connection in the living moment is something that is very much real and alive and i've really loved this concept that that is woven into the fabric of the awakening of of what happens in the return that that realization of this is home you know yeah i just i just say this one other comment to that um as dire as the fireman's warning is, it's in our house now. I think it would have been far more dire if he had said it's in our home now. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's all I have to say. I'm done. That deserves a pause because I, I, I do think that that would have been more powerful. You know, we've talked a lot about kind of the dilapidated poor houses as, as places of sadness, but Sylvia Horn's house is great looking. Like it is a very <laughs> nice home and it is a messed up house as well. Like uh, the, it's not about being rich, being poor, um, you know, the, the equally these are houses of, of sadness on both sides. You know, yeah, Sylvia's Horn, Sylvia Horn's house is, there's wealth there, obviously. She's got jewelry and she's got paintings and she's got a, um, you know, she's got what seems to be, um, well, you know, evidence of wealth in the furniture and the decor. Um, but, you know, all that's a mask, right? I mean, that's a mask. Mm-hmm. That's that would be maybe how she would present herself to the public too, wearing jewelry and a fancy dress and, and her hair done just, just right. Um, it's a mask. It, it, so in a, in a way, I would argue it, it's perfect reflection of who she is. Um, you know, she has yet to find a home. I think she's a tragic character, to be honest with you. I think she, um, she was likely the one who had to take on um, trying to care for Richard uh, and at the same time having uh, Johnny Horn there as well. And um, she unfortunately uh, you know, never gets a chance to, uh, uh, to find peace. And, and that's just the way we leave her. Yeah. It's like she lives in this house that has a gate, you know, a security mm-hmm. gate right outside mm-hmm. a gate. And mm-hmm. like that still can't keep the darkness out because it really is already there. I mean, Johnny Horn's got the emotional problems. Um, you know, she's out of balance with her family. Um, and, you know, in comes the darkness and that one horrible scene. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like once you, yeah, it's it's like the, the harmonized family again. You know, it's like you, you want to be in a family that supports each other, but you know, she has to call Ben Horn and, you know, she's basically yelling at him to like, you know, give, give her money, give her this. It's about money. She keeps looking for security. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a a good point. And and I guess, you know, if we're 
kind of bundling the wealthier places that we see in there. I put the Hastings home in there. I put mm-hmm. Diane's home in there. Um, you know, yeah. those are both well, nice, nice places with nice things that are in good place. They're perfect order, but yet there's still sadness, I would say, yeah. and something missing that, mm-hmm. that emotional connection that we talked about. It's not there. And then, and then the hole gets filled by darkness, whether it's Richard or Mr. C or the, uh, the Dale that raped Diane. Yep. Or Hastings, who, you know, apparently cut someone's head off. Or <laughs> they, yeah, his yeah wife well, I mean, thought, Mr. Thought C walked into Hastings' house. That's what I was meaning mm-hmm. there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you point. know, the Hastings, house is, the Hastings house is the only one that looks like it might, and we don't see a lot of it, but it looks like it might be a comfortable home. I mean, I don't think Diane, Diane's, Diane's um, house, home, whatever, is, is kind of stark. It doesn't look like a place you can really relax in. And I think that a lot of that is just decoration that she's put up because she obviously is trying to mask something mm-hmm. that uh, happened to her. The Hastings home mm-hmm. is, is a little different, although um, we can't ignore the fact that hanging in a wall, on a wall in the, in the Hastings home is a picture of Franz Kafka. So I think that <laughs> is a signal that something's not right here either. Right, <laughs> so. right. And then in the, uh, in the Sylvia Horn's house, wasn't there a picture of Eisenhower or something on the wall? There is a picture of Eisenhower. It's the same picture, I think, that shows up in the FBI. We see the FBI mm-hmm. offices uh, um, in Las Vegas. Those the two those two FBI characters are trying to track down the Jones family. I think there's a I Wilson. think there's a, a portrait of the same portrait of Eisenhower is there. That's great. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Jacoby because I think his house really <laughs> is, I think, the first house that we see in the return. Mm, yeah, besides the fireman. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the first scene in the real world is the the shovels heading up the the road to his place. And do we all agree that that's probably where he lives? Oh, he absolutely does. He lives in yeah. the um, he lives in that trailer up in the up in the mountains. That's one thing that they were saying about with um, oh my gosh, in Final Dossier. Yeah. Um, you know, he that's one thing. Like, you know, he he goes on his quest and he figures out that, you know, he finally just wants to help people. And he goes up that hill and he builds his trailer <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, so he's like um his his sense of security is basically stuck to you know, like he, he finally figured out how to balance himself and like how to give back and how to help and like you know that that's like what he decided his mission was and that's why his place is you know secure up on the mountain hmm. I, you know i would also say though that uh that all of that is true but the interior of that house is cluttered and it seems yeah. to be kind of chaotic and i think again i mean it just reflects this um, potentially angry um, individual who uh, wants to um, kind of lash out at the world or at least, you know, he's screaming into the abyss, perhaps. I don't know. He, obviously, he reaches Nadine, mm-hmm. um, whose home, by the way, apparently is behind the drapery store. <laughs> I think she lives there. He lives at work, which is a perfect, I mean, that's just another perfect metaphor for Nadine. Those drapes were so important to her. She's going to live there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, uh, Jacoby's uh, Dr. Amps 
place. You know, we do see uh, Dr. Jacoby's uh, home in the original series, and he's obviously moved to a different place now, and he has moved to this sort of um, um, messy jumble of, uh, we don't see a lot of it, um, but you get the sense that there's just a lot of information in there that he's trying to get out into the world and it's conspiracy theories and, and they're really not conspiracy theories. You know, he's angry about legitimate things. It's he's all just, played out. He's literally <laughs> amplified it. And his, yeah. his, his, the interior of his home is an amplification of that mindset. I think. Yeah. i see, I see him as 60% John the Baptist and 40% Unabomber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing interesting that Jacoby's doing, though, is like all the shouting he's doing. That seems to be like there's there's a bunch of people that scream like when they're like just realizing that something's wrong, and um, he's kind of doing the screaming for people. I think in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways, he's like Mm -hmm. shaking up their energy so that it can finally start from whatever they're stuck in, and. he seems to be just like waking people like Nadine up. Like she never had to scream. She was just listening to him. And um, Mm. it's just, I I don't know. I I find Jacoby absolutely fascinating in his season three incarnation. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. This this concept of screaming is probably a a sidetrack that we would get on really quickly, but it's definitely worth talking about at some point. Uh, Laura obviously screams. uh, What's her name that screams on the floor of the roadhouse? Like those are, these are key moments. Yeah, Ruby, these are key moments in in the return. I'm sure there are more that we could pick out. So let's just earmark that for another conversation. But I, I really like that. I think that's super important. Um, and then, you know, there's a, a saying that Judd Apatow put on Twitter a couple weeks ago, and it's something about, like, he's like, you see stacks of, of stuff all around me, but <laughs> it's not hoarding if all your stuff is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel like Jacoby has really awesome stuff like cosmic flashlights and just really cool mm-hmm. shit all around him, you know, in his whole trailer. So uh, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Perhaps we yeah. could talk a little bit about um, Alice Tremont's home in part 18 uh it's the final home we see in the return and Mm -hmm. uh it it marks you know what could be you know revealed as cooper's failure in in the return um so let's start with john bernardi what do you think about alice tremont's home and how it affects that theme yeah well i honestly don't know a whole ton about about the home because we never get to see into it. It's, it's kind of a way of, of showing, you know, it's like, this is, this is the mystery at the end, you know, it's like, we're not like, it's, it's less, I find that the Tremont home way less of a, of a, of an actual home and more of the metaphor, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like you're, um, well, like, uh, let, let me put it this way. It's uh, the, you're looking for the homecoming photo, but you accidentally find the girl in the homecoming photo. Mm. You know, it's like you, you, um, you don't know what's inside, but you know, it's not that. That's kind of what I think of the home as. Cause you know, what else can like, what, what even is revealed about it besides the facade on the front? The ownership chain, I guess. No, I think that is critical. I think it's critical that we never go inside the home. Um, 
inside the house. Is it Sarah Palmer's house? We don't know. We don't know anything about it. I, mean, I think we get some shots. Obviously, the camera's positioned inside the house because we see uh, Cooper and Laura slash Carrie um, standing outside the door. But it is fascinating to me. I hadn't really thought about it until now, but it is, it is so important that they only get to the door and they do not cross that threshold and go in. Mm. Um, I don't, I'd have to think about this for a little while, but I think there's a lot going on there um, because of the way Alice Tremont is positioned in the door as well, as if she's blocking them from accessing the home. She doesn't pull the door open all the way. She doesn't step, you know, back at all. Obviously they're strangers. If you want to look at it just completely on the surface, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't open your door and just two people would just show up in the middle of the night and say, come on in. But um, she's guarding the door, arguably. Um, we do not know what's going on inside that place. Uh, we hear, she speaks to someone else and we, we hear maybe a muffled response, but no, no discernible dialogue. So we don't know if really there is even anyone else in there. Um, and I think, you know, I think some of that is, is important to talk about because I don't think that's Laura's house. I mean, I don't really, it, it's, it looks like it. It's the exterior. It, it's ostensibly in Twin Peaks, Washington, which is where Cooper somehow drove them in, a, in you know, from Odessa, Texas in the in period of one night. Um, but of course he didn't really, you know, right. He, right. he drove into space and time, but, um, I do think, I really do think the fact, you know, we're talking about interiors and we've talked about how the interiors reflect, uh, you know, the occupant uh, of that, uh, of that dwelling. And we do not see the interior at that point. And so we can't make really a lot of guesses about what um, the mentality, mentality of that Alice Tremond character is. We don't, is she otherworldly? Is she just a normal human being? That's completely blank. And um, I think that's deliberate. I think seeing inside the home, I don't think Lynch wanted to show us anything in there because um, he didn't want there to be any extra quote unquote baggage on mm. this character. He wanted her only on the threshold and he wanted Cooper and Carrie slash Laura only outside. They, they, there's, there's a reason why they don't go in there. They turn around and go back down the steps um, and they face this edifice uh, or Carrie certainly does. And, and that's critical. Uh, that's really important. Um, it, it's a symbol more than anything else of, of her past, of another reality, of trauma. We can go on and on what it could be. It could be all those things, but mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, um, the, the last home that I think I, I had on the list, and we actually moved through this list pretty well, um, was the fireman's home. And I think you, we already talked about that a little bit, John Thorne, but uh, I had a question I wanted to pose to both of you in relation to the White Lodge. You know, do, do we ever see the White Lodge first? And if we do, is it the fireman's home? Because this, I think, was something we all um, talked about quite a bit during the return as it was airing. Like, is that the White Lodge? Is that the White Lodge? You know, we asked, I felt <laughs> like I asked myself that question every episode. So what do you think, John B., first? I figure that 
all those places, the the Red Room, like all that stuff. Um, Lynch was always on record that like he never showed us the Black Lodge. So I'm assuming that he just doesn't show us the Red, the the, uh, the Black Lodge or the White Lodge. You know, it's just not for our eyes to be able to see. Mm. So I just assume these guys are all you know the the sentries on the on the post you know like they they have their their um their little outposts like you know in between they're the doorway and um yeah <laughs> so he's just as in between as everybody else with his houses yeah i don't think it's the white lodge um i'm trying to find um lynch did an interview with this french film magazine which i can never pronounced because I don't know how to speak French, but it's, you know, Cahier du Cinema. Um, and he was specifically asked about um, the White Lodge. And this is a translated answer. He said, um, I think it's so much a matter of subjectivity of interiority that if you saw that, it would not work, meaning the White Lodge. He couldn't show it to you because he didn't want to define it. Um, it's different according to each one, which again, this is a poor translation maybe, I think he means according to each character. Um, it's rather an interior sensation, something suggested in an impressionistic way. It's very abstract. Maybe Angelo Valamente could get that through with some music. But he, Lynch, in this comment here, um, is pretty much you know, confirming that he couldn't show us the White Lodge. Mm. Um, and so I don't believe that that uh, was my my take on it is that the, was that the post return realm is not the way. Excuse Sorry. me. Was that uh, interview post return or pre? Yes, December twenty seventeen. Wow. Okay. I yeah. mean, I, yeah. I, I, John, you, John Thorne, you've convinced me that I don't. I don't think we've seen the White Lodge. I don't think that what the fireman lives inside of the Purple Power Station represents the White Lodge. Mm -hmm. More. Um, the mechanics of how the dream works, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Agent Jeffrey's machine controlling memories mm -hmm. or the fireman's whatever's going on behind mm -hmm. the theater. Uh, th those mm -hmm. are firing right. off elements of the dream and or the, the machine that rings the alarm. And the, I think all of these are great metaphors for how our minds concoct dreams and, and put memories together. But if we have ever seen the White Lodge, John Thorne, you've convinced me it's it's when Audrey wakes up. That that would be the only time I would think it came right. close. Yeah, it's a bright white light. Um, she is in a white space. I mean, you know, obviously there's a mirror there, but there's nothing else to. Uh, she's in, she's wearing white. Um, and then and we talked about it in the Audrey mm -hmm. uh, in the Audrey episode because we found that Lynch quote that's in Catching the Big Fish. Where he talks about, you know, essentially this white space is, um, you know, the transcendent blissful consciousness i forget what the term he uses but she potentially accesses the white lodge uh but it's that's her her white lodge i mean it, it probably as he says if you were going to show it well you can't really show it because it every and that's why we see so very very little of it i mean he didn't want i think he deliberately did not want to spend more than the, the two seconds he does, just the concept that Audrey is somewhere else, white, that's it. Um, so the, you know, he didn't want to define it. It's almost like talking about the, 
the Tremond house at the end. You don't want to see the interior of that because you can't see the interior of that. Um, and so I would say, yes, Audrey went to the White Lodge, but it's her White Lodge. And it would be different for every single character, be a different place. It makes me think that like, but not even Audrey actually all the way made it in there because the thing that she was talking through was the mirror. You know, it's like the, like she could, she could see it, but she couldn't experience it because like, you know, it's like she, she just needed to grab that voice from the mirror and put it on her own face. And um, then she could be in the White Lodge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought that she doesn't seem to have any sense of awareness outside of the mirror that she's staring at. Like you don't see her look around the room or anything mm. like that. It's, it's, she's literally just staring into the mirror. That's a, that's a great uh, insight. Wow. Hmm. I like it. Um, okay. So I'll move off the white, the white lodge. I just had to ask the question. Um, where do we think, and, and as we move into kind of wrap, wrapping up the, the theme, where do you think Laura Palmer lives? Where's her home? <laughs> is that a loaded question? I think it's a loaded question. Like, I just don't think there is anymore. You know, it's like she might have been born somewhere, but like she's just um, everywhere and nowhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an excellent answer. I mean, I think, um, you know, my own take, without too deep into, you know, the idea of who and what Laura is, um, is that for a period of time, anyway, she was a mortal human being. Um, and for a period of time or an eternal time after, she's something else. Um, and I mean, it really is a great question because did Laura find her own version of home? You know, you, you get the sense at the end of Firewalk with me that she's certainly happy. And, you know, if that's the case, then she's home. But I, I don't think that's the end of the story anymore. I think something else continues from there. Um, um, so I think it's a mystery. I really do. I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to, to decipher that. She walks into the red room and shows her true face to Cooper. Um, but that's more for Cooper's benefit. Um, uh, I, I think she's an enigma and we really can't know more mm -hmm. than that. Well, I, I love that answer. And I think it's exactly right because, you know, if you took what you just said, which was for a time she was a mortal human and then she died and became something else. Well, now you're talking about Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, like that, that could absolutely be applied to the, the savior that dies and is reborn again for uh, a cause, you know, regardless of what it is. But there is a mysterious element to that that people have been debating for centuries. You know, what is the Holy Trinity? You know, like all, all of that is a great way to look at Laura as a character in Twin Peaks because her story was over technically before it even began before the show even began. She was a murdered girl before the narrative of Twin Peaks started in season one. But somehow this character is infused into the core element and narrative of a show that's now gone for 25 years. So she lives somewhere. Well, in a way, like it's not necessarily that, um, that there's like a Jesus connection per se, but like, you know, it's like maybe she's not a savior, but maybe she turned into the story of the girl who lived down the lane 
and like mm. now the story's home. I, my, my only comment would be that I think you need to look less at a Christian theology and more at a Hindu theology when it comes mm-hmm. to Laura Palmer. Um, um, I'm, I'm convinced um, that Laura Palmer um, for Lynch um, is, he, he is exploring Hindu concepts of, um, so, you know, the cycle of ages and, um, and that Laura, I've written about this, I don't want to go into too much detail right now, but we can talk about it some other time, but that, that Laura um, is positioned in the narrative as you would see um, the, uh, the concept of um, certain hin- Hindu beliefs. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, I don't think Lynch intended that at the beginning, I think as he went through the storyline and he kept modifying it and altering it and finding new ways to explore Laura Palmer, it wasn't until season three that he saw an opportunity to, to uh, cast her in that, in that role and, and make her represent some of those Hindu beliefs. So we can talk about it in detail later. And I would say, you know, as a, as a, student of hinduism you know david obviously in 25 years had a lot of experiences that he didn't have mm-hmm. when he was making the original twin peaks i mean he made the maharishi film and went mm-hmm. to india and, and obviously right. became more deeply involved in the the institution of of tm so um yeah that, that's totally valid for lynch you know the idea is that um when he's talking about houses and showing us houses that oftentimes they're metaphors for, for certain psychological aspects of characters. And, and um, you know, we didn't cover them all, but there's others, there's others there. You know, I think, I think it just makes the work that much more complex and rich when we, when we look at it through that kind of lens. I, I feel like home, is very important to the return, obviously. It's Dougie Jones's mission, you know, when he comes in is to find home, is to, to start to figure out what that means. And as a viewer, I think that's the journey we go on with the dreamer, who I would say is Dale Cooper, but you know, th- that idea of awakening to what this concept of home can be, and then putting it aside, by the way. So, you know, putting it up on the shelf and then continuing the mission to failure. <laughs> so uh, that that's ultimately I think what happens in there um and it's it's kind of a sad story but I also think there's a ray of light at the end and there's certainly uh, a lot of lessons that we can take away from it Twin Peaks is a moral story uh and uh, I think it's a fairly simple one um and I think home is uh definitely worth talking about further at some point uh, but I'm I'm pretty sure I've exhausted all of my thoughts about it right now what what's left to uncover at this point i mean we've <laughs> we've gone through yeah. the theme this way and that way and we've unfolded it and we folded it back up this way and <laughs> unfolded it that way and talked about the lines i mean it's <laughs> we've uh we we could go on like all day talking about different aspects but i mean we've we've, we've done it yeah <laughs> we solved it let's go home